This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And coming up right now, in your face, in your face. Parlour there, gossip. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Aram Hossey joins us to talk about their community engagement work at Equality Australia and their personal journey. We also speak with policy expert Joel Murray about a New South Wales Police Association proposal for mandatory infectious diseases testing. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, yesterday I had the honour of chatting with Aram Hossey from Equality Australia about their personal journey and their community engagement work. It's the first time that I've uh, had a paid job, I guess, doing LGBTIQ things for the last oh, it's probably now 15, 15 or so years now. I've been involved in advocacy, but it's always been something that I've done you know, kind of on weekends and, and evenings around my around my day job. Most of my advocacy has been about about trans trans issues, issues affecting trans and gender diverse people. I got involved in that since I transitioned thirteen years ago and discovered that I went from you know, from being a lesbian to being a trans man I ended up with less rights and so I got really interested in, in how to do something about that. So I have been involved in advocacy for a long time. Uh, and now that I'm in in this role, I get to do it as my as my day job every day, which is really lovely. Tell us a bit more about that discovery of finding that you had less rights as a trans person that, that had transitioned. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, you know, certainly my experience is when you think about transition and you go through transition, initially the focus is really on physical changes in your body. That's where all my focus was. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that you work out as you go along, like, oh, I need to learn how to move through the world, a very gendered world, in a, in a different way to other people perceive me differently and you haven't been socialized in many ways to move through the world in that so there's a whole bunch of kind of social learning you need to do and then there's all this stuff around the law and around the way you fit into society so on the upside I guess I gained male privilege and that opened some doors but on the on the flip side my access to, to medical care that was appropriate for me and affordable really shifted a lot of affirmation kind of related Surgery and hormones and other treatment is not available in the public health system. It can be really expensive for folks to get access to. So that, that access to healthcare is a really big one. The, the capacity to have some control over your own identity to say who you are. You know, as, a, as a lesbian woman moving through the world, you can pretty much declare to the world that you're a lesbian woman and that's accepted. Whereas for trans people, literally just being able to have a piece of paper that, that affirms that you are who you say you are is, is extraordinarily difficult in, in many instances. Uh, and discrimination protections often are not as extensive for trans people as they are for people 
who may be gay, lesbian or bisexual. And that's certainly the case in Western Australia, which is the state that, that I hail from. The discrimination protection is, is quite different and there continues to be some gaps uh, in, a, in a range of different places for discrimination protection for trans people. Tell us a bit more about the different ways people treated you socially once you transitioned. Well, it's not so much. I've, I've been very fortunate, I think, in that I have not experienced a lot of direct discrimination on the basis of... of of my trans history, but the world is a very gendered place, and so some of the things that have most stood out for me is is suddenly having access to male privilege in the way that I'm able to navigate spaces with other men because they relate to me as a man, and sometimes I feel a bit like a spy actually, kind of seeing how that works and been able to use that to my advantage professionally sometimes, but I also find it concerning that that's how the world works. Um, and so thinking about how I can be a feminist ally now that I'm not a, a, a woman has been an interesting thing to think about. Thinking about issues around safety, both in terms of the fact that late at night I now suddenly can feel like a safety threat to other women. I can, through my own existence, sometimes be a protection to other women. And and equally, I no longer have the you-can't-hit-girls kind of protection for me. So realising that um, a drunk guy in a pub if he wanted to punch me probably would feel entitled to do that because of because you know the, the don't hit girls kind of protection was removed so it's kind of small things like that that were really interesting to, to navigate and I think for many trans people discovering all these really different ways that the world feels different after you transition can be quite challenging and can really I think sometimes add to some people's you know, kind of, kind of stress and, and mental health or mental well-being as they try and navigate these changes. What about how women treat you once you've transitioned? Uh, what were some of the differences you noticed there? I think it is very much around that sense of safety. So I... And it was kind of a shock, I guess, that when you've been socialised as a female, you grow up thinking about how to keep yourself safe late at night, you know, walk where there's lots of light, walk with other people, keep your keys in your hand, ready to, you know, defend yourself if you need to. And then all of a sudden I realised that if I, as a, as a male-bodied person, was walking too closely to another woman on the street late at night, she would start feeling quite threatened and unsafe. Of course, I'm the same, exactly the same human, but just in a different body. And that realisation that being a man suddenly put me in the potential threat category as opposed to before when I was in the you know potential victim category. Um, I think that's really stark and says a lot about society and about you know the, the real issues we have around men's violence, I think. And so just being very, very conscious of that actually and thinking about how I re- how I can try and relate to women in ways that feel safe. Not something that maybe necessarily I always get right, but it's something to be really kind of conscious of given the fact that I move through the world in a different body now. You mentioned healthcare earlier. There must be a huge number of treatments and medicines and all sorts of things for trans people in healthcare that aren't covered by Medicare. What are the main ones that jump out? Yeah, absolutely. I have to say that in the conversations that I have with community in my in my current role, um, when we're talking to trans and gender diverse people, access to healthcare is an issue that comes up all the time. Um, this is something that the National LGBTI Health Alliance do a lot of work on, but it it just it it's 
a major problem for folks. I mean, for people who want to access medical transition, typically, but not always, that might involve access to hormones and or access to some surgery. Some hormones are covered a little bit under the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, but some aren't. And either way, there is delay cost associated with that. So depending on your financial circumstances, that might be prohibitive or, or tricky. And that's certainly harder for trans women in particular. Um, there can also be some challenges around just availability for hormones. So at various points in the last couple of years, testosterone in particular, there's been various shortages of different types of testosterone that makes it quite stressful for people if, you, if you're not potentially going to be able to access that. Surgery is really tricky. There is there's very there's, there's very little to no surgical um, interventions available in the public health system. So you're needing to access that through the private health system, or in some cases, people go away internationally. So that can be extraordinarily expensive for people, and and again, often prohibitive for folks, um, even if they want to have those surgeries. What are the main issues that trans and gender diverse people raise with you through your work as a community engagement officer beyond the ones you've just highlighted? Yeah, so that's right. I mean, health health and access to services comes up all the time and that's, that's not only access to services in order to transition, but also just it's just that any service you access, whether you're just seeing a GP for a broken leg, that they that those health professionals have some degree of sensitivity and understanding of transgender diverse people. That too often is really lacking. That's particularly the case in terms of mental health services. Again, a lot of transgender diverse people experience challenges around our mental health and that's not because we're inherently mentally unwell, but it's because of the challenges of moving through the world as a trans person and the mental health system is not, not well equipped to, um, to support us. But the other really big one that comes up all the time is around making sure that we have documentation that reflects who we are. Um, and there's a really patchwork kind of approach to this around the country. The laws that govern it are state laws. Some states have reformed those laws and some states haven't. So if you live in the ACT, Northern Territory, South Australia and Tasmania, all those governments have moved to amend those laws and make the process much easier for folks to, to amend their documentation. But if you live in WA, Queensland or New South Wales, the law hasn't been changed and the, the barriers to changing those documents are still very high. And that's a real problem because that often has a, has a literal day-to-day impact for people, whether it's applying for a job, going to Centrelink, opening a bank account, applying for a rental property. So often we need to produce a document that says you are who you say you are. And if you're endlessly having to have these conversations about why this document doesn't appear to reflect who you are, it's, it's stressful, it's unpleasant. Sometimes it can open up people to the risk of discrimination or worse. And so it's a simple thing to be able to change the laws to make it easier for people to get the right bits of paper, but it hasn't hasn't progressed everywhere. And the, the way that you need to do that is not standard around the country. Last week on the show, we spoke to Jack Tomlins about the Trans and Gender Diverse Parents Guide, which is uh, launched in Melbourne this week. Tell us about your own personal journey as a, as a father. Yeah, well, I um, I have the... Great fortune, I guess, of, of co-parenting a little person with a, a whole tribe of other adults. And I think it's really interesting as a, as a trans person kind of how parenting can, can happen and that journey looks different for different people. Some people um, have biological 
children who are connected to them because they give birth to them or they you know donate <laughs> donate chromosomal material others of us kind of have connections to our children that are more i suppose kind of socially constructed but either way you know many trans people are parents or may transition after they've become parents and resources that really help to help parents have those conversations with their children have conversations with institutions that their children interact with like schools and, and healthcare services are really useful I think more visibility around this and more opportunity for people to have conversations and get support is really is really great Aram, you're very active in Equality Australia's campaign in relation to religious freedom what are some of the issues that come up in relation to religious discrimination through your work as a community engagement worker? Yeah, well this is certainly the topic that everyone is most concerned about at the moment and for, for good reason. There is no question that federal law currently doesn't provide discrimination protection for people of faith and or people who have no faith. And that's a gap and that's worth that's worth being addressed. I think if we subscribe to the principle that nobody should be, as an individual, should be discriminated against, we don't want to see that happen, then that needs to apply to everyone. And and in particular, we need to recognise that there's a number of LGBTIQ people who are also people of faith, and we need to make sure that everyone gets that, that degree of protection. The challenge is that too often, when there starts to arise a tension between religious belief and LGBTIQ people's identity and existence and access to services, but also women's rights and women's access to reproductive health, then we get into often a really fraught debate. And what we really want to make sure is that the law protects people from discrimination, but it doesn't create any space for people to discriminate against other people and use their religious belief as an excuse for that. The, the federal law currently allows some exemptions for religion to discriminate against others. And so our position at Equality Australia is that any exemption that currently exists for religion needs to be needs to be wound back. We don't accept that schools are a, a classic example of this. Schools shouldn't be able to, to expel students or fire teachers on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. So we need to remove those exemptions and we need to be really careful that any new laws that are introduced don't wind back the existing discrimination protection for LGBTIQ people or create new discrimination. Some activists say that the state-based laws in this area are adequate. Uh, what's your response to that? Yeah, well, that's right. And discrimination, I'm not a lawyer, so I need to put that caveat over this over, over everything I say. But discrimination law, there is both federal discrimination law and state and territory-based discrimination law. Um, so in a number of states and territories, there are already protections against discrimination for people of faith. Um, and equally, uh, at state and territory level, there's, there's discrimination protections for people on the basis of their sexual orientation and their gender identity. And it always then gets tricky when federal and state law kind of then interplays with each other. And again, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't get into the technical detail of that. But the, the, the principles need to be that anything that happens at federal law needs to not override strong protections that already exist at the state and territory level. Tasmania, for example, is, an, is, a, is a place where they've got incredibly strong discrimination protection for LGBTIQ folks and where the religious exemptions that exist are, are, are very, very limited. So it would be a, a very bad thing if federal law 
somehow sent that backwards. But equally, we can look to the way some state law work in protecting people of faith and say, well, if we replicated that at a federal level, then that would work quite well. Aram Hosey, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's much appreciated. And thank you for talking about your own personal journey as well. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. for Matt from Burning Vinyl, who's been in hospital. Love you, Matt. Well, the Police Association in New South Wales has called for the mandatory infectious diseases testing of people who are charged with assaulting police. On the line, we have HIV policy expert Joel Murray. Joel, welcome back to 3CR. It's great to be back. Thanks, James. What are some of the civil liberties issues that arise from this mandatory testing call? Uh, it's It's a good point. I feel like there has been further encroachment upon our civil liberties by um, the police vis-a-vis them accumulating great, greater discretionary powers over the last few years. Uh, we've seen the mandatory testing policy coming to effect in other states, South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland, uh, with a risk that it, that's going to uh, be picked up in New South Wales and even Victoria. What are some of the concerns that this raises for people living with HIV, which is, of course, a stigmatised community already? Look, I think the main issue for me, there's a number of issues. First of all, it goes against 
all of the evidence and, in fact, the national HIV policy, which states that all HIV testing should be voluntary. But the other point is that there is absolutely no evidence to support the need for this policy. So there's very strong evidence that, that you cannot really pass on HIV through spitting. And so, and that's because of, uh, HIV is a virus that's very weak outside the body. And what this really is, I think, is about police maintaining control. And while I can be sympathetic to the needs of frontline workers and, you know, the frontline emergency service workers do come into contact with a, with a range of difficult circumstances and to be spat upon by someone who perhaps they're detaining is actually quite an affront and, and a form of assault. I don't think that testing or forcing people to uh, do blood on virus testing uh, is the way to deal with that particular issue. It's interesting. I read a media report where a spokesperson from the Police Association in New South Wales actually raised the issue of people spitting. And that made me think that perhaps some police need some more education about HIV transmission. Absolutely. That was going to be my suggestion, is that perhaps a better approach is to raise the awareness and that education of what HIV is like today, that it's a manageable condition and that most people, well, in fact, the majority of people, the vast majority of people who are living with HIV are on effective treatment, which means they can't pass on the virus. Now, maybe the same can't be said for Hep C. Hep C is a, is a bit of a, of a stronger virus. However, again, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that spitting has resulted in any substantial hepatitis C infection. Now, if it were to occur... If there was transmission of hepatitis C, which is not likely, but if there were, then there is effective treatment. And again, it's very, it's very effective treatment. It's a short course of treatment and um, you can be cured of hep C in as little as eight weeks. To what extent is this call for mandatory testing a reaction to the ice epidemic, so-called ice epidemic? I mean, certainly that could be one factor. I think where the call is coming from potentially is that the Police Association in New South Wales has seen that these other states have implemented it and they see it maybe as a potentially effective way of protecting the people who they represent, which is the, the police force. But I just think that it's really, it's not, it's not placed in the right direction. I don't think this is the direction that we want to head down where we're forcing people to, to enter into bloodborne virus testing. This debate seems to have kind of echoes of the stigmatisation of certain groups and the assumption that certain groups have diseases. Would you say this debate's being framed around stigmatisation and demonisation? I think so. And particularly, you know, we're talking about people who are already marginalised or disadvantaged, people who are vulnerable at that particular moment. Maybe it's people who inject drugs. Maybe it's people from Aboriginal communities. Maybe it's people from LGBTIQ communities. I guess what the point is that I think the police need to rethink the approach. I think that certainly there's a strong voice from the community sector saying this is not the way that we should go about addressing this issue and perhaps we need to have a rethink and what, what might be more effective. How have civil liberties groups in New South Wales and also HIV advocacy groups reacted to this mandatory testing call? A few years ago at the Australian uh, Australasian Society for HIV Medicine uh, HIV Conference, it was held in Adelaide and this was just off the bat of South Australia passing mandatory testing laws. And there was a strong call from that conference. In, in fact, they, uh, there was a consensus statement that was just really pointing to that 
lack of evidence that support in support of the policy. So I think that the HIV sector is very aware of the potential threat of this, and I think that some certainly some quiet conversations at the moment, but probably in the coming months there'll be some more public conversation just about how harmful this policy could be. How is the relationship between HIV advocacy groups and the police in New South Wales? Does there need to be some more discourse, do you think, in light of this call? Um, I think there might be a little bit of disconnect between the what the uh, police association, which is the union representing police officers, and what the actual police think. I'm not sure about that situation. However, there have, have been significant inroads made to try and bring the queer community and the police back together as a more sort of cohesive, uh, into a more cohesive relationship. And I think anything that can be done in terms of more soft advocacy and trying to build those bridges is actually the right way forward. And hopefully through building up better trust and a better relationship, we can have these harder to harder to have conversations and and we can softly advocate for, you know, that this is not the road that we should be heading down. How responsive do you think the New South Wales government will be to take up this 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 call for mandatory testing? Look, I think it depends on where the where the position comes from. I'm certain I'm I don't know what the views of the Department of Health and I can't speak on their behalf. However, I would imagine that someone like the, the Ministry of Health would come out and, and say that actually the evidence isn't here to support mandatory testing. And that, in fact, while it might be quite distressing for um, someone who, a police officer who's been spat upon, you know, there are other ways that, that we can counsel and support that person that doesn't include testing. How would you rate the uh, New South Wales Health Minister on HIV and their relationship with HIV advocacy groups? Uh, it's not really something that I'm completely aware of. I, I don't believe I've heard the Minister for Health come out and speak about HIV in any sort of substantive way in the recent past. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. It'll be interesting to see if Alan Jones takes up this issue. Well, you know, if there's some sort of advocate that we, if we you know, if we could convince Alan Jones that mandatory testing is not the way forward, then he could be actually a very meaningful uh, vocal opponent to such a test. It's about perhaps getting, if we've got the right connections to, to whisper in his ear and to see him, to ensure that he sees the bigger picture, it could, he could be a powerful ally. John Murray, thanks so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's much appreciated. Thanks, James. And that was HIV policy expert Joel Murray, and this is The Do.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.